is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Nation's coming to you live. Actually, I'm not in the studio today. I uh, have the COVID again, so I'm at home. But we got Joe Hayes and rocking the panels there uh, in Newsstand Studios in Rockefeller Center. How you doing, Joe? I'm doing great, man. Good to hear from you. I'm sorry you're feeling so poorly. Yeah, you know, whatever. You got to do what you got to do. Got to gotta quarantine, do, do all the right stuff. And you got John there in the studio with you? Yep, I am here. Holding down nice, the fort. Nice. And then we... Uh, yeah, we have uh, we have over in uh, Vancouver Island. We got Quinn. How you doing, Quinn? Hey, I'm doing good. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, in LA, we have uh, Jackie Molecules and Nastasia Lopez. How you doing? Good, great. Beautiful yeah, day. yeah, yeah. So, uh, any you guys have any uh, any interesting stories from the week? My only story is uh, I got the COVID, so I didn't get to go to Harvard and do all of the fun Harvardy stuff there. But uh, you guys got anything? Yeah, we uh, Stas took me to this salon event where they were debuting plant-based cheese called Climax Foods, and we both kind of walked in like, "Oh, this isn't going to taste very good," um, but it was surprisingly good. We were both really? very surprised. Yeah, 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 yeah. What about the? And what we about the? Really, fact- yeah. No, we were so, like we were ready to hate it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it took a lot for us to be like, "Oh wow, we were wrong. That was pretty good." Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. So let's just say that it's a delicious product, because I trust you both on saying it's a delicious product, right? Yeah. Is it yeah. cheese, though? Um, I want you to try it, Dave, because I feel like if it was a blind taste, you would not know, truly. I, I brought you up in the conversation with the woman, and I was like, I feel like my business partner would like this, truly. I, I have I have an open closed mind. You know what I'm saying, right? I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to be a you know, I'm going to be a jerk about it, but I'm I'm open. But because I'll say this, like back in the day when people used to pretend that like uh, frozen yogurt was a health thing, you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that that used to be a thing, frozen yogurt, a health thing. So my wife was always like, she would buy these like like yogurts, right, and then try to serve them to me like they were ice cream, and I'm like. This tastes good. This is not ice cream. This is frozen yogurt, which is its own thing. That's my only point. Like, is it its own new product, or do you say it actually tastes like cheese? I understand what you're saying. I think that, you know, if you put, if I served it to you on a cracker and you, and I was like, here's some cheese, I want to know, like, and you had no idea, I feel like you wouldn't, I feel like you would think it was cheese and not like new product. Yeah, I think okay. I agree with that. When the, when the sample size is that small, I'm like, if I'm just at a party, a cocktail party, having a little bite of cheese on a cracker, I would not think twice. Right. If I was sitting there and having a lot of it, maybe, yeah. maybe then other notes might come up, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, okay. And uh, mainly spready or, or like all different textures? No, no, there was a, a chev, a blue, a feta. Um, what was the other one? The idea of calling it Chev, it's just like, I got to say, I want to taste it. The idea of calling it Chev bothers me a little bit just because that's like a thing. (laughs) John, aren't you feeling me here? Yeah, it's not Chev-like, I guess. Whatever, I I want to taste it though. I want to taste it. I want to taste it. I definitely want to taste it. And then if we we like it, we're going to have her on, right? The producer? Yeah, that's the idea. I asked her. She never got back to me. Maybe she actually did (laughs) <laughs> uh, you never know. You never know. I'm terrible at judging that stuff. Speaking of uh, coming on next week, next week we have the food griot, Tanya Hopkins, on. So I'm excited for that. Uh, and if you're listening live, you're going to want to call in to ask a question of today's special guest. And John, how do they call in? What's the number? And how do they join Patreon? Uh, they call in using 917-410-1507 and they can sign up a pay- uh, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash issues, and it gets you a bunch of benefits like prioritized questions for awesome guests like today, um, access to Discord and a whole bunch of other neat little things and there's a bunch of affordable membership levels so everyone should join. Yeah, and uh, and I, I think you know we we got good stuff. We got good stuff. We got good stuff on our Patreon. But today you're going to wish that you had the ability to call in and ask a question live because today's special guest is uh, one of the my idols. Uh, you know, as a as a young cook, as someone who you know, I used to watch his television show, and I can't. Uh, when I started working for the French Culinary Institute in 2004. I could not believe that I was going to get to work with him in the real life. Um, okay. We have today on the show, Chef Jacques Papin. Uh, hi, how are you doing, Chef? How's everything good? Okay, how are you? Doing well, doing well. Uh, okay. So I guess um, I wanted to start 
just by asking you uh, maybe to say a little bit about uh, Chef Alain Sayac, who uh, was uh, a great man, a mentor to many of us at the French Culinary Institute. Uh, your friend, you worked with him for for many years, and he, you know, he um, died last week. Do you want to talk about him a little bit? Yes, he was certainly a great friend and a great chef. I mean, you know, chef at Le Cirque, chef in the best restaurant in the country, and uh, he worked at. Uh, I worked with him at the French Culinary Institute for for the ten years. And uh, he was a very gentle person, very giving and fun and all that. And uh, certainly he's going to be missed. I mean, certainly I miss him. Um, you know, in the kitchen, you you create some very tight bonds sometimes and uh, stay with you forever. So, uh, yes, I will, I will miss him and, uh, and miss his talent and his fun and his... Uh, you know, his good humor and so forth. So yes, he was, I will miss him, yeah. Yeah, he was a funny guy. He had a very dry sense of humor and he could throw you yeah. these looks, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he never threw a look at you like he would throw at me or at uh, oh. one of the other people who were working. But... Maybe not, no, I don't know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and you know, for those who don't know, you know know who he is, because he never became like a household name like you did, Chef. Uh, but he was mentor to thousands of students at the French Culinary Institute, like thousands. Yeah, no, of students. no yeah. question. And prior to that, you know, in the in the restaurant that he worked, whether he worked at the Twenty One or at Le Cirque for many years, he taught a lot of uh, he taught a lot of chef how to cook the right way. So yeah. Three star, you know, the three star, four star in the New York Times, you know, so that's the maximum he got. Yeah, didn't he? Where, where did he get the four star? That was at Lucine? Uh, uh, no, at Le Cirque, I think. Oh, Le Cirque, yeah. And did yeah. he recruit you to be the dean at the French Culinary Institute? How did that work? No, no, I was there before him, a number oh, of years oh, before oh. him. Yeah, oh. no. I, uh, I was recruited directly. You know, but by Dorothy Kahn, who was the owner of the place, well, uh, not long after it opened. Uh, yes. And uh, and after that, uh, Alain worked at the 21 for a number of years, and at that point he wanted to kind of retire a little bit or do less, and he came and uh, he decided to come with us at the French Culinary Institute. And eventually we had only Saltner coming with us. Yeah. Nice, yeah. Soltner, another giant. Oh my God, I love Andre Soltner. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Jacques Tourette. I mean, when you guys were all together, the four of you at the French Culinary Institute, it was kind of like an unbelievable team of people. It was kind of an unbelievable place, in, in my opinion. I was very proud to work there. Um, yeah, it was. I mean, I uh, I enjoyed my, my year there. It was really special. And the restaurant itself and the quality of the food and the price was very low, uh, so it was a great place to cook and a great place to go and have dinner. Yeah. So uh, I want to talk to you. We'll talk about the uh, Jacques Pepin Foundation also, uh, you know, because you're, apparently you're doing. Uh, I did a video for you uh, based on my favorite one of your books, and I've, I think I've told you this before. But the two volume, The Art of Cooking, is one of my most cherished cookbook possessions like in the whole world. Everyone should go buy a copy of this book. And you would always say that it was not successful because it was too much it was too much money for people to buy and Americans didn't understand skinning baby lambs. But you want to talk about this series of books? Yes. I mean the, I think it's probably the best book that I've done too. I mean to a certain extent, depending on the on the way you look at it, but uh, it's certainly one of the least successful books that I've done. And uh, it had to do with, uh, I wanted to show, I show in La Technique and La Method prior to that, uh, the technique and the basic technique of cooking and uh, the manutention of the food and so forth. And uh, But often I never finished it with, uh, with recipe. Here it was, I wanted to do the same thing, but finish it with a recipe to exemplify what I was talking about, and it was also in color. So we did 34,000 pictures 
in uh, about five years period it took me. And we kept 3,000 pictures, 1,500 for each of the volume. We had two volumes. And, you know, I went uh, fishing in Long Island to, to get a... Uh, um, to get a skate because you cannot get a whole skate. You can only buy the wing. So I wanted to show you how to take the wing out. I went fishing in my pond here to get frog to show you how to take the, the skin out of the frog and do it. And people often maybe get turned off with that. When in fact, you don't really have to take the skin out of the frog. You can start at picture eight or nine or whatever when it's all done and go on with the recipe. You know, and I did a whole uh, leg of veal, for example, about 40 pounds, where I explained people, uh, you know, top round, bottom round, eye round, top knuckle, top seal, and the whole pieces of the, the whole different muscle, and, uh, and did a recipe for each of those muscles. Again, uh, in that case here, you can buy a piece of meat and do one of those recipes. You don't have to follow the whole thing, but... That's the way it was, and uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm very happy with that book too, and uh, I uh, I still have a couple of copies, I guess, but uh, it's totally different than the book that I did, like fast food my way or the shortcut cook or thing like this. So, but it's it's good to investigate cooking in uh, in different ways, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I see a copy, I usually buy it and then give it to somebody because I love it. But I want to talk about I want to talk about your new book that that just came out, which I wasn't expecting to love this book as much as I do. But the art of the chicken, I think, I love this book because I mean, what what uh, what I love about it is it's kind it's it traces a similar story to your memoir that came out what maybe 12 years ago 10 years ago um 20 years ago yeah 20 jeez i'm getting old too huh so like <laughs> yeah, when, right. so but this book it traces you through your life through the lens of chickens and it gives many many recipes but the way a cook would give a recipe to somebody, not the way that right. you would write in a cookbook, you know? Right, it's a very narrative sense. And, uh, and to a certain extent for me, it's the first book that I bring together uh, my cooking and my planning and my writing, uh, because uh, this is not, as you said, written in a, in a conventional manner with recipe and so forth. It's just narrative style telling you, you know, my mother used to do this, that too, or when I was at the Plaza in Paris, we used to do this, that, and, you know, this is the way you explain to a friend, uh, certainly another cook who asked you, how did you do that? So uh, some recipes are feasible, <clears throat> some are probably not really feasible. Uh, it's interesting, <clears throat> excuse me, you say that, that uh, my editor at, um, you know, at Simon & Schuster, uh, gave me, uh, at some point, we discussed, because I, I didn't really want to do a book of recipe. I wanted to do a book of my planning of chicken. And now I start sending a, a picture of chicken. They say, can we get can we get some recipe with that? And uh, so I, I said, I don't want to do recipe. So I finally end up doing story about chicken and, of course, about eggs. At some point, she tell me, oh, I think I need more you know, more explanation and more ingredient and stuff. I said, but it's not that type of thing. She said, well, I said, all right, fine. So I gave her a recipe from <clears throat> La Mer Brasier in Lyon. Lyon, where I come from, down in France, was very well known for the formidable uh, woman uh, cook. You know, like, uh, well, in my family, actually, I have uh, 12 restaurants that I can think of. 12 restaurants owned by women, uh, including my mother, several restaurants. So Lyon was very well known for those. And La Mère Brasier was in the 40s. She had a three-star restaurant in the 40s a long time ago. And even Bocuse, one of the greatest French chefs, uh, did his apprenticeship there. So La Mère Brasier's recipe was the chicken, chicken of breast, of course, the best quality chicken where I come from, with truffle under the skin, it was pushed in a pig's bladder, you know, and all she put was a leek, carrot, and an onion in the pig's bladder, and it was pushed slowly. So it was brought to the dining room, you know, all inflated, so very impressive, but 
to a certain extent, very, very simple. It was just forced in there. Then the juice was removed, reduced with butter, and served with the chicken. Uh, very impressive, but, you know, uh, very simple in a sense. So when she asked me that, I said, okay, the chicken meal was here. I need a pig's bladder, two truffles, one chicken, a breast. And she said, what are you talking about? I said, well, <laughs> you, want, you want ingredient? You want list of ingredients? I'm doing you list of ingredients. She said, all right, fine. <laughs> but we out of it. But they never asked me again. Yeah, well, that's, that a, that's, a good, that's a good way to end that conversation, right? Yeah, right, um, right. I have to say, uh, the first time I ever saw somebody cooking in a pig's bladder was, I think, on uh, <clears throat> Iron Chef, the Japanese one. And I looked for years in New York City in the late 90s trying to find a pig's bladder. You cannot buy it anymore. That recipe cannot be made anymore. I don't know. I had it on the West Coast uh, a few years ago. I forget uh, when was the chef. He did squab, you know, in the pig's bladder, too, and that was great. So, uh yeah, it's certainly that's what I said in that book. I will use the the, you know, the, the chicken waffle and the unborn eggs, uh, chicken comb and uh, chicken feet and many many things like that that people don't use. So as I said, some recipe are not uh, really feasible. Although I wanted to emphasize the use of the offal, you know, uh, from the feet to to uh, to the neck to. Um, you know, as I say, the, the coxcomb, but all of that have always been used. Chicken liver, certainly, it's most important, the gizzard and so forth, uh, rather than just people often use only the breast of the chicken or a couple of things, uh, when in fact, uh, I choose the chicken also because that may be the most democratic of all, of all food because you will have a chicken in a truck stop you know, and then uh, in a cafeteria next door, and certainly if you go to the hospital, they probably give you chicken. But then you have it in that three-star restaurant with truffle under the skin. So there is, and I don't think I've been, you know, from China to Russia, from West Africa to Portugal or Italy, and I don't think I've ever been in a country where they don't have chicken. Uh, and often chicken... Uh, is, uh, you know, a life-sustaining type of thing. I remember in West Africa, in little villages, you know, people are very poor, but they are three or four chickens. You know, for the eggs, probably, more than anything else, and eventually to kill the chicken when it was too old and do some type of stew with it. But it was kind of a life-sustaining thing, yes. So, uh, yeah, that's what I choose, chicken, and as I say, of course, the eggs, which is maybe more important than the chicken, and all of the offal, the variety of meat that we don't really use, I mean, chicken bladder and chicken uh, uh, gizzard and the, the liver and the feet and so forth. Right. So, so speaking of the waddle and the comb, the recipe you give for that in this book is the banker's chicken, the, the financier. But So why would the yeah. rich people be going for the, the waddle and, and the comb? It's an interesting kind of juxtaposition, no? Yes, but at that time it was considered like a truffle, like all the type of things, something very special, and and it is very special. Too. We don't we don't use it anymore much. Uh, yeah, it was in a puff paste. It was considered quite elegant and uh, all that. I'm going back to uh, I mean actually the 17th century. And speaking of gizzards, you do have a huge section in the book on uh, gizzards. So. One question, I've never, I don't know, because I'm stupid maybe, I've always just braised them. I've never done the confit. What's the difference in texture when you confit the gizzard versus when you do the braise? Well, it's there is similarity, but I mean, when you confit it, it ends up being creamier and more pasty creamier, and also you keep it in the fat in the refrigerator. You can keep it a long time. Actually, you can do the liver in the same way too. <coughs> Excuse me. I often... Uh, with salt, pepper, a bit of cognac, some garlic on whole liver, and uh, I uh, poach them slowly in fat and uh, until they are still rare inside or pink, and uh, keep them in, in the refrigerator in the fat of the chicken, and I keep that for weeks, you know, and you take one out, you slice it almost like a foie gras, and it's really very, relatively very inexpensive. I mean, certainly where I did my apprenticeship, which was in Bourg-en-Bresse, where those chickens come from, the chicken of breast, I mean, the the fat of the chicken was probably uh, 
uh, more price or half price practically as butter. I mean, we use it for everything to saute potato and do all, all the kind of thing. One thing that I use also in the book is the chicken skin. The chicken skin for me, uh, I find it better than bacon. You know, each time that I do a chicken, I take the skin out and put it flat onto a skillet, a dash of salt onto a, a cookie sheet or whatever, and cook it in the oven uh, uh, until it's crisp like bacon. And uh, and I scramble it on soup or on salad or on stew. And the fat, of course, which is rendered, than to use it to saute potato or the type of vegetable. So that's the way, you know, I mean... That's the way I was taught how to cook, and also the fact that I, uh, uh, you know, when I was a little kid, it was during the Second World War, so certainly my mother and other people cooking were very miserly cooked because <laughs> ingredients were, uh, inex- were very expensive and you couldn't get them, so uh, you used everything, certainly, yeah. So uh, another one you 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 have in this uh, using the parts of the chicken. Of course, chicken liver. I guess it is cheap. It shouldn't be cheap, but it is cheap. You in the eighties yeah. put a, a recipe on or nineties on one of your shows that I used to make constantly, and then you have it in the chicken book again. That kind of your your style of chicken liver mousse, where you almost make like a miqui in a pan. You fry it very quickly and then you blend it. So that it, yeah, it oh, gets yes, some yes, parts yes. cooked and some parts not. It's a great way to make a, a fast mousse. Oh yeah, that's that's good. And I, I do it two or three different ways. You do it usually when you get a whole chicken. At the opening of the chicken, you have one lump of fat on each side. If you took those two lumps of fat together, they about equalize the weight of the liver. So it's a, a mother nature organized it this way. So you can cut that that fat into pieces and render it, and I put thyme, bay leaf, uh, black pepper, and stuff. And then the the liver portion it and eventually emulsify. So you can do it this way. You can also do it by buying, and you can buy now uh, very easily uh, on the internet or whatever. You buy chicken fat or duck fat and use the rendered fat and start it this way. Another way that I do it in another book, I poach the chicken liver in a bit of chicken stock with a bit of onion right? and uh, remove that and put that in the food processor, not the liquid, but uh, and then with the same amount of butter. And uh, with butter, it does the same thing too. So there is a different way of doing those mousse. Uh, and the beauty of it is that you do it and it frees quite well. So, you know, you, you do, uh, you know, half a pound of chicken liver and you put that into a small container you have it in your freezer, and when you have people coming for a drink, you take that out to defrost it and put it on toast, and it makes an excellent, uh, you know, things to serve with cocktail or with drink. And a couple more things from the books, just so people, because uh, I, I definitely want people to check this book out. So, in the original Art of Cooking, you have Danny Kay's chicken salad recipe, which, by the way, right. is a yeah, it's a technique I still use where you you know you just bring the bird basically up to the simmer and then let it ride and then you 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 bone it out. But in right. the new book, you give a new secret that you didn't give in the old, which is that he used oh. to stick silverware into the bird to keep it sinking in the stock and not floating. <laughs> right. I mean that was like a joke when I went at his house. He told me, I'm going to show you how to poach a chicken. So he took a handful of uh, knife and fork and all that from his drawer. He put it into the chicken, put it in a stock pot. I said, what the heck are you doing? He said, well, like that, the chicken doesn't come to the surface. It stays in the bottom. It will stay in the bottom anyway, one or the other. So that's not a necessary step, but it was fun. So that's what I yeah. mentioned it in there, yeah. Yes, that's funny. So uh, one of my coworkers at the French Culinary Institute, uh, Hervé Maliver, he used to do that for sous vide and low temperature because uh, oh, yeah. if you weren't, yeah, if you weren't using the vacuum, right? If you were just rolling, yeah. like a, doing like a, a, a ballotine or something, and you were rolling it, it might float. And so he would always roll in uh, butter knives so that they would sink oh. to the bottom of the bath. Anyway. Oh, uh, that's right. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Good. yeah. 
okay, another thing you mentioned, uh, black pepper in your, in your uh, liver mousse. And I read in the book that you have the correct opinion that black pepper is superior to white pepper, but that Julia Child did not agree with you. No, that's true. I mean, those, those are small uh, differences that we had and we argue too. I mean, uh, in the old classic way, she said any white sauce, you should have white pepper corn, the white pepper and not black one. And it's true that it was done this way. But I mean, people don't realize that uh, green pepper corn, white pepper corn, black pepper corn is the same berry. You know, you have green pepper corn when the berry is not ripe. And it's very flavorful and with less hotness, green pepper. And then if you let it dry, then the skin shrivels on top and, uh, and it turns red uh, when it's, when it's, uh, when it's uh, you know, ripe. And then you let it dry out and the skin turns black on top and you have black pepper corn. And during your drying process, they wet it and wash it and it washes the skin of the top. And then they have the center, which is the white pepper corn. Ultimately, the white pepper corn, the green one, the black one is the same one. I feel that the black one has more taste because of the skin on top, which hasn't been removed. It's more flavor. But, you know, it's a question of taste. Speaking of uh, Julia Child, something I did not realize until I read this book is that the famous Dan Aykroyd sketch where he pretends to be Julia Child and cuts himself and sprays blood all over the kitchen is actually from a real thing that happened when she cut herself on your knife on her show. Yes, that's true. It was Tom Snyder. It was Tom Snyder on that show called The Tomorrow Show. And I did it a couple of times with him in New York. And then he had moved to the West Coast. And he asked me, can you do it with Julia? And it was like an hour and a half, just the two of us. And... Uh, so I said, sure. So Julia happened to be on the West Coast because she'd originated from there. She was in vacation. And uh, so she bought uh, enough food to feed probably 50 people. And uh, because sometimes I say, I don't need recipe. It doesn't matter. Just cook with Julia. And uh, so I said, great. So they, I, I was on a book tour actually for my book, uh, La Méthode, the second after La Technique. So it was 1978, I believe. And so they picked me up at the airport, and I was on that book tour. So uh, the plane, I mean, we were taping in the afternoon, and uh, they had to pick me up and rush me to, to the, the studio because uh, I was, the plane was a bit late and so forth. And so I rushed there. They, they put me on stage five minutes before we start, and Julia told me, okay, I have this, 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 all the food, and I had my knife. Because I was on a book tour, I had a little knife with me in my pocket. At that time, you could uh, you could bring a knife with you on the plane. Because I do a show in the morning for like uh, 30 seconds. They want me to cut some things, so I do a tomato rose or whatever on television. So I had that knife with me. So I took that knife and I put it on the counter. But she was telling me what she had. She took the knife to cut a shallot and almost took the end of her finger off. So... Uh, I push, I push it back together and tie it with the, with the towel. And the Tom Snyder was crazy. He said, what are we going to do? And Julia was mad at herself. She said, we're not going to do anything. We're going to cook. Uh, and I'll taste and Jacques cook. And I don't want to talk about uh, my finger. He said, okay. So we start the show. And uh, uh, I think Julia was in the middle. And she said, we are by order of size. Yeah, because I think Tom Snyder was 6'7". He was very, very tall. And she's like 6'2", and uh, me on the other side. And the second thing, Tom Snyder said, Julia, do you mind if I say that you cut your finger? Of course, so the camera narrowed down on her, and that was the end of it. So uh, uh, two days later, she was on the Johnny Carson show, and they talked about her finger. A week later, I was with her on another show. We were supposed to do omelette. All we did was to talk about our finger. So it became a big thing. And eventually they did that uh, that thing in uh, Saturday Night Live, which was very funny. She actually liked it very much, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's a classic sketch. I've seen it, I've seen it dozens of times. Yeah, classic. Yeah. All right, so here's some other couple of strange things in the, in the book, interesting recipe ideas. So you have an Eggs Jeanette, and that was, that's named after your mom, you said? Eggs Jeanette? Yes, right. Yes. And it, 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 it amounts... It, yeah. My mother used to do that when we were kids. It's a conventional art cook text, but then she took the yolk out 
and crush it. Usually she use a fork, uh, crush it with chopped garlic and chopped parsley, a persillade, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and the egg yolk and salt pepper, a dash of milk to make it tasty. And we stuff the eggs and then we saute the eggs tough side down for a minute or so. It brown beautifully. And she always had a little bit of the stuffing left over. So she had it with mustard and olive oil to do a mustard sauce to sell with it. So we've done that at my house forever, you know, so the egg jamet. I even remember my wife one time, we had a, a big party, so she decided to do egg jamet with quail eggs. So she had like three dozen of quail eggs. She said, I'll uh, never do it again. Oh my God. To peel those uh, quail eggs and cut them and stuff them. Yes. Peeling but quail people, eggs is the worst job in the world. Peeling quail eggs, I hate <laughs> peeling quail eggs. Oh my God. I know, me too. But, uh, but it's a very... Uh, you know, simple and classic recipe and quite good. But is it amount almost to like, an like I know not stuffed as much, but like almost like an American deviled egg that's fried on the one side? I mean, it's such a, to, to, as an American yeah. growing up with deviled eggs, it's like it's kind of a, I was like, oh my God, I can fry a deviled egg? Sounds good. Yeah, no, it. but the, well, it's, it's different. Remember there, I have garlic in the chopped garlic and parsley. That's why it's cooked this way. And uh, it's not stuffed. That is, uh, your your deviled eggs, you cut it in half, but you you pile up the the stuffing on top so it's higher. Here it's level. You just put uh, enough stuffing to have it level so you can fry it, you know, so, yeah. And another thing I had never heard of before, you said that when you were in, uh, I think it was in France before you came to the U.S., that you would make the French toast with with creme anglaise, actually melted vanilla ice cream as the instead right. of like a, I never thought to do this, and it sets up enough. There's enough egg in the in the anglaise to set it up. Yes, absolutely. Because remember that uh, uh, the classic uh, uh, French ice cream, certainly vanilla ice cream, is done with a creme anglaise, and the English custard cream is done with egg yolk. I mean, three egg yolk per cup of milk. So at the Plaza Athene in Paris. We did uh, a lot of different types of ice cream, but when I was a breakfast chef, sometimes pressed by time, you know, uh, instead of having all the eggs and all that to do that, I would I would take uh, eight or ten scoops of uh, vanilla ice cream, let it melt on the counter, and when I start having order for scrambled eggs, I dip slice of brioche in it and saute it and serve it with, uh, you know, maple syrup. So it was very good. Mm. All right, I'm gonna try it. I'm gonna, try, but don't don't go trying it, people, with Philadelphia style ice cream. It must have the egg in it, right, Chef? No, not really. It will work with really? that as well. Yeah, oh yes. Huh? I'm gonna try it. I'm definitely gonna try it. Um, okay, uh, I have some questions from before I go more into the book and the foundation. I have some questions from our uh, listeners. Uh, this is from Fly Jamerson. He said, uh, hey, Chef, I'm so uh, stoked for this episode. When I started listening to the show seven or eight years ago, I was also teaching myself how to cook by watching uh, Jacques' specials and his amazing show with Julia. Now I'm a pastry chef, uh, and I listen to the show and follow the foundation on Instagram. You've been so influential over the years for me and for so many people. I've always loved, uh, this is for you, Chef. I've loved seeing you share your love of cooking with your family. My two-year-old loves to help in the kitchen at home, and I wonder if you have any advice for cultivating and teaching very young chefs. Well, you have to get the kid involved with you from the moment they are born. I mean, when my daughter was a year and a half old, I hold her in my arm and she stirred the pot. I said, okay, melange. Right, so she would stir it, so she quote eat it because, of course, she made it, quote, with her father when, you know. And uh, likewise, uh, you know, my granddaughter, I have done television show with her and uh, when she was small, so, you know, she stand next to me on a little stool uh, at the counter and I say, give me the salad, you see it's clean, you want to clean it up, help me do that and go to the garden with her and say, okay, get me some parsley and I say, no, this is shy, okay, this is parsley, taste this, taste that. Then I take her to the market, you know. I say, I need some uh, some tomato or I need some pear. Make sure it's ripe. Did you smell those pear? You think they are ripe? You know, so you get the kid involved like that. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, by the time you finish cooking, then you, you share the food with them and discuss. The discussion continues. So it, it's very important. And also... 
I think important uh, to give the kid what you are eating exactly in the same way. I don't think I ever did the uh, you know baby food for for my daughter when she was small. Uh, we uh, uh, whatever I cooked before I put too much salt pepper in it. Seasoning I put it in the in the blender and uh, and that's what she had. So you know. Uh, by the time she was six or seven years old, if we gave her some spaghetti and clam sauce, she knew the taste because she had it in a puree when she was small. You know, so that's important to uh, to do that too, I think. And uh, Frank wants to know, what is the most fun experience you had uh, doing the PBS show uh, cooking with uh, Julia Child? What was the most fun, if you remember anything specific? Oh, yeah, we had many, many fun so to start with, people don't realize that we had no recipe there. Uh, conventionally, when you do a series, and I do, I did, uh, you know, 12 series of 26 shows. So when you do a series of 26 shows, uh, you usually come with a book and uh, or at least the manuscript of the book to get an idea to the back kitchen of what you're going to do and so forth. Here we had no recipe. We had a list. He said, okay, let's do stew tomorrow. Let's do this, that too. So it was a bit more complicated for the cameraman probably to to follow us because they didn't know what we were going to do. And uh, but for us it was more fun cooking. You know, if I put scallion in that dish, uh, it's because they happened to be on the counter and I was cooking and I put them in. I didn't have to worry about a recipe. That was one thing. The second thing is that when you do show like I did on PBS. Uh, I was told at the beginning, uh, you have to do it on time because editing is very expensive and all that. So uh, for several series, I did it on time with a guy going by saying uh, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 3 minutes, wrap up and so forth. Uh, with Julia, she did. She said, well, we're going to cook and when it's finished, we'll tell you. Some show were like 70, 80 minutes, you know. Uh, so we had no recipe. We had no... Uh, no time limit, and we had a lot of wine, so it was a fun show to do. <laughs> um, a friend of uh, mine and an FCI graduate, by the way, who has a very successful uh, pastry sh uh, business in Nebraska, Angela Garbutz, wants to know, from Goldenrod Pastries, how did you uh, take on leadership and the teaching of students' employees? You were always good at it at the FCI, but I'm curious how you took that on and learned the best ways early in your career to be a mentor. Well, uh, I am, um, I don't know, I'm very Cartesian, uh, so I like to break things down. And that's what I started to do with La Technique, breaking things down into simple techniques to show people how to do it. I would never really have thought of it when I started cooking and doing show on the road. Uh, I would never have shown people, I don't know, how to peel a carrot. For I said, well, anyone knows how to peel a carrot, except when I did it. So people say, oh, that's how you do it. You cut. Yeah, so I started taking those really basic techniques, how to peel a... And this is why my book, La Technique, and all that, it's still in print, you know, and it's over 50 years old now. So and I don't, uh, I don't cook the same way that I did 50 years ago. But the technique remains the same, the way you sharpen a knife or the way you peel an asparagus, you know, or the way you push an egg is the same way that it was 50 years ago. That's why those books are still in print. So it started there for me, uh, teaching people, explaining all of those basic principles. So uh, so that my, you know, I always like to teach and explain and so forth. So that was the beginning of it. So speaking of the way to do things, and the things that don't change. There are many, many, many ways to bone out a chicken. And then there is the Jacques Pepin way to bone out a chicken, which I learned, I saw you do it on TV. I saw you do it many times at the French Culinary Institute. How many seconds did it used to take you to bone a chicken? I don't know, it was a few minutes, but it's not, uh, it's important, I think, because if you know how to bone out a chicken and cut exactly in the joint of the hip and in the joint of the shoulder, then you know how to do a duck, you know how to do a quail, you know how to do a goose, you know how to do a turkey, and you know how to carve in the dining room when the bird is cooked, because uh, all of those cuts are always in the same place where you cut to, to break down, take the meat of the carcass, you know. So it's important to take some... Uh, and, you know, all of those techniques are important. And basically... Uh, it's a question of repeat, 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 which is the way we were trained, certainly when an, an apprentice. Uh, 
when I was an apprentice, uh, you know, well, of course, I was 13, 14 years old, so I was young, and the chef would tell you, do this, and uh, you would never have said why, because if you had said why, he would have told you, because I just told you. That was about the end of the explanation. So the learning was through osmosis. More, at some point, the chef told me, okay, tomorrow you start at the stove. I said, I start at the stove. I never got close to the stove except to put coal in it or wood at that time. And so then I started at the stove and I knew how to do it. So, you know, the, the, the learning was was different through a type of osmosis. But by repeating, 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 you get, you know, you transcend the level at which you have to think about it. If I am on television, I don't have to think about it. Uh, you know, my hands are just working and I just think in terms of the texture or, or the color of the ingredient or whatever. So it's a, it's a different way of, uh, of learning. But, but certainly, uh, I think that any great chef from... Uh, uh, Daniel Boulou, Thomas Keller, or Tom Colicchio and all that are first good technician. And then they happen to have talent, and they happen to have talent, and they happen to have drive, and they happen to have uh, other things than just the technique. But the technique, I think, are very, very important to start with. Uh, I know a fair amount of chefs who are very good technicians and run a good kitchen and uh, uh, with a good uh, food cost and so forth. And are relatively, oops, my dog is around, and uh, run relatively uh, a good kitchen, and are not great chef at all. They are re- relatively ordinary cook. But you need to really be, as I say, a great chef. Then you have to be a good technician and then have talent and so forth. You know, so. So uh, another question I have for those that, you know, know your career, you were for a time the equivalent of the White House chef in France, and you were the chef for Charles de Gaulle, which is kind of an amazing, it's an amazing right. thing to have on your, on your resume. And Sam wants to know what's the, and I kind of know a little bit from reading the book, because you talk about what he likes to eat in the chicken book, but what, uh, Sam wants to know what's the weirdest thing that uh, de Gaulle liked to eat. The weirdest thing, there was nothing weird that he likes to eat. It was, you know, you have to realize that when you are cooking for head of state, I serve people like, I don't know, I don't know where, Nehru, Tito, I mean, the head of state at the time. Uh, you try to please the people that you're going to serve with, coming from different countries. And, uh, but uh, when I cook only for the president himself, uh, that is, on Sunday, for example, uh, they were devout uh, church goer and uh, Catholic. And uh, so at that point, after that, the family always came to eat the children, grandchildren, and the whole family. And at that point, of course, they ate exactly what they wanted. And what they wanted was relatively simple food from a, a leg of lamb to a poach fish and uh, I would discuss the menu with, uh, of course, Madame de Gaulle and decide what they wanted. But uh, there was nothing really weird or unusual. Well, yeah, and you said that your boss before him had spent a lot of Francis' money having you cook all sorts of crazy things and that the de Gaulle family was very kind of above board. Yes, I mean, uh, when, uh, you know, you you, you do special... uh, Special reception for head of state. I mean, you have caviar, you have foie gras, you have very expensive stuff. But uh, when I cook on that Sunday meal for the family, then Madame de Gaulle assisted on paying from their own pocket, which was, as I said, a kind of a drop of water in the amount of money that we spent. It was a question of principle, very uh, ethical type of uh, people, you know. Uh, Chef Andy Ricker wants to know, and of course you have recipes in here, so and I know the answer. Do you ever cook with chilies? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I had a house in, uh, I mean, I had an apartment in Playa del Carmen in Mexico, uh, and for it over ten years, fifteen years, my wife and I used to spend a couple of months during the winter. So regardless of the country where I am, yes, I would go to the market and buy all kind of dry chili and 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 cook with them and pull around with them. I have different recipes, different of my book with that. 
Hey, uh, Quinn, you said we had a couple more questions for Chef off of the Discord. Uh, what do you got? Uh, yes, we do. Uh, nice to talk to you, Chef. Um, Matt from Mystic asks, I'm curious what Jacques thinks of modernist techniques like sous vide, low temperature, and how they fit into the history of cooking. Well, I tell you something. For 10 years, from 1960 to 1970, I was the director of research for Howard Johnson, and I worked there. At that time, we would take a recipe that we developed on Tosa with your friend. At that time, I would take a, a whole uh, a whole breast, double breast of turkey, for example, put it into a plastic bag, and draw the air out of it. And that was called cryovax. Cryovax, and we lower it into water, not too hot, and cook it this way. So uh, the sous vide <laughs> was called out, I say, cryovax at that time. And it was technique that we did uh, for many, many years, uh, you know, to, to control the food and to control the quality and so forth. So, yes, those old techniques, I mean, those new techniques, which seem that have been, uh, you know, invented just today, I can find them very often. Back uh, 30 years, 30 years ago, you know. So, um, another question: um, uh, What what's the method or recipe for the most delicious thing you made in the past year? And that's from Dave Clayman. No, I don't have any answer to that question. The most delicious thing that I did in the last year is probably a fried egg like today for my breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you cook every day in different ways. So I, mean, I don't have one thing that uh, I'm going to cook all the time only this way. I mean, people already ask me what is the best thing to eat. Uh, I tell you, if I have an extraordinary baguette and extraordinary butter, it's very hard to beat bread and butter. So <laughs> It is very hard. And uh, remember, the French culinary had very good bread. I don't know if you remember how good the bread program was at the French Culinary you Institute. Asked, but what I said. Yeah. 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 Um, I had a follow up on, you mentioned uh, the Howard Johnson, the Hojo, like uh, when I was growing up, like that was a, still a, a, a real place. You said that uh, it started changing a lot when you left in the early seventies, but one of the things they were famous for is the crispy clam strips. Now, did you have anything to do with the crispy clam strip from Howard Johnson? Yes, <clears throat> yes, of course we did it at the time. I don't think it'd be possible to do it today because uh, we did that with clam, which were over a pound big. Uh, deep clam, I don't know where people find him. They were a special uh, supplier of those enormous clam. And uh, we opened them, and we only used the tongue. You know, the tongue of the clam, we put through a machine to do long strip to cut them into long strips, and the belly, the belly of the clam was used for clam chowder because we used to do, you know, 3,000 gallons of clam chowder at the time. So, uh, uh, yes, and the, the, the fried clam were pretty, pretty well known at the time, yes. So, and uh, it was great, too. Yeah. yeah, no, that was a thing. My wife loved it. I loved it. I mean, the, the clam strip, that was a, you know, that was a thing. Uh, so right. follow up because you've lived on the, on the coast of Connecticut for a long time. Are you a, when you have fried clams, do you prefer with the belly on or do you prefer it Hojo style, just strips? Well, either one, I frankly, you know, I like, I like sometimes with the belly on sometimes just, but as I say now, you would not find the tongue as big as we used to have to do it the same way. Uh, because I don't think it's the sea is depleted of that type of uh, big, big plants. Also, you mentioned in the book that when your mom came to visit you in the States, you made her a lobster roll. And I want to say, and so John, who's in the studio, who you know I work with, who's also a chef, he's from Connecticut. Uh, and uh, we all believe that the lobster roll should be warm as opposed to the way they do it maybe up in Maine. And that's how you serve it to your mom, a warm lobster roll. Do you, do you always prefer a warm lobster roll or do you also like the cold ones? No, I like both. <laughs> Frankly, my wife liked it better with mayonnaise. I like it better with butter and hot. So, but you know, uh, if you give it to me with mayonnaise, I will eat it too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
All right. Um, something else I learned again, I, I hate, I'm only bringing up this book cause I learned so much in this book. Everyone should go get the book. I didn't realize. So my, my favorite cookbook series ever is the time life, uh, foods of the world. And you, I didn't know this, but you did a lot of the cooking for the uh, classic French uh, cooking volume, including the yes. crazy dish on the cover with all the shimmering aspic and the, and the, uh, with the, you know, the, the white sauce, the chauffeur sauce over the, over the, the uh, pool. Do you yeah. want to talk about the, that experience? Cause that's maybe the greatest cookbook series ever. And it came out before most Americans even knew anything about kind of food of the world. So you, you want to talk about that series at all or? Yes, it was, uh, the series was done by uh, uh, Craig Clairbonne, who was the food editor of the New York Times, writing it. And Pierre Frenet, who was uh, my friend and my boss at Howard Johnson and at the Pavilion, uh, was asked to do the food with me. So he asked me to do the food, uh, especially for the picture, to work in studio and so forth. Uh, we had no recipe for that either. And I said, do you want me to make recipe? And they said, no, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll follow you and we'll have the recipe. Well, I tell you, <clears throat> it would be totally impossible I've looked at the book of recipe to follow a recipe to what they wrote, you know, when I did it. But anyway, those were all classic recipe. And when we did the cover of the book, Poulard de la Neva, you know, so it was uh, the breast, you know, the, the whole chicken poached and eventually the breast removed and cut into a, uh, and to slice and quote with a with a chauffeur, you know, which is a cold uh, uh, velouté uh, with uh, with gelatin in it, and decorated and glazed with aspic on top. That's a very classic dish too, but I mean, pretty complicated and stuffed with a mousse of foie gras inside. We did it uh, when I did that one. Uh, they took picture of it and uh, they shoot it from the top very close and it was beautiful. The people say, what is this? Uh, they didn't know what it was. So, so we have to redo it again and they did it the second time. They wanted to put champagne next to it to balance it. And again, the, the art director or whoever decide, decided they didn't like it either. So we did that third time. So I did that thing, as I said, at least three times. But uh, when I was there working in studio and that was in... 63, 4, 5 in those area, you know. Those. So, but that was an interesting book. I still look at, uh, I agree with you, I still look at uh, that 30-plus uh, volume book uh, going from a different part of the world, you know, other reference book. It's a very good reference book. Julia Child did the first one of the series, which was Country French Cooking, and the second one was that classic French cooking, and it went on and on from the American cooking in different areas to, to Chinese, Japanese, uh, Portugal, Italian, Spanish, and so forth. So it's a great series to look at for reference. Yeah, when I found out you were a part of it, I couldn't believe it. Yet another way you've influenced me, Chef. Um, now, speaking of uh, the cover of this book with all of the aspic. Why is it you think that Americans, we can't wrap our head around aspic? And you actually have a story in the chicken book about eggs en gelée. And uh, I have to say, that's one of the only things also, because I got food poisoned once from it, that I don't eat eggs en gelée either. But, you know, what do you think it is about Americans and aspic? Why we can't, uh, why we can't, why we don't like it? <clears throat> Because you, were, because you don't have it when you were a kid. You know, there is many recipes from other parts of the world that you are as a kid and those recipes become kind of visceral, I mean, very powerful, those tastes of which your mother or whoever did it. But if you never had that, all of a sudden through middle age, you know, or whatever, you get a new recipe which sometimes doesn't correspond with uh, your sense of taste. You say, oh, I'm not eating that. And that happened to any country. And especially here that the only time that you usually uh, speak uh, that is a uh, jelly would be with jello, and jello, of course, is done with fruit and fruit, I mean done different way, but I mean usually with fruit and juice and so forth and sweet. So when you have the same type of texture too, and which happen to be salted and strong, they have called people who kind of a uh, you know, I mean not everybody, but many people don't go for it. Yes, here, but I love it. I still do it in summer. The, uh, oh, it's nice to have cold dish in summer anyway. Um, 
So I, I learned also in the book, but I'm going to have you pronounce it because I'm not going to try the French word for the oyster in the back of uh, poultry, in the back of a chicken. You know, we call it the, the oyster, but I, I don't know how to describe it. When you're boning out the back of the bird, there's a little, there's two little pockets in the, that you have to make sure your knife goes in and gets them out when you're taking off the thing. And we call it the oyster, but what's the word in French? The word in France is so less, and it's actually three words. S-O-T, uh, L apostrophe Y, and the third word is L-A-I-S-S-E. And the solely less just means the dumb leave it. Uh, <laughs> so that's the name of uh, And certainly, uh, I remember uh, in France in uh, you know, in the 50s and all that, when I was working in Paris, doing a fricassee of those, uh, which would take four or five chickens for one portion, because there is only two to a chicken. So that was a kind of very fancy, fancy type of uh, dish to do, certainly. Uh, now, one more chicken, sorry, one more chicken, a couple more. I mean, like, I just read your book on chicken, so I have a lot of chicken questions. I apologize. But... Do you still do the full old school trussing when you cook uh, when you cook your chickens? Like keep the legs in tight. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. <clears throat> Depending whether I do it for myself simply or whether I have some guests, I want to present it a bit nicer. So yeah, one or the other. You also, in your roasting, you have an interesting technique where you don't do just breast up or breast down. You do side one, side two and then lay on the back. So like, um, which is, I think, different from the way most people are w w write about it, right? I don't think people even flip birds at all anymore. I mean, I, I right. haven't heard someone, I haven't heard someone write this recipe this way in a million years, but even back in the day, it was top bottom. But uh, I'm now going to try the side side uh, and on the back. You think that's the best way? Well, to start with, you have to remove the wishbone, you know, of your chicken. Uh, it makes it easier to call. Secondly, I cut usually an incision between the drumstick and the thigh uh, in their articulation. Uh, that's where often it stays a little red and people say, oh, it's not cooked enough. So you end up overcooking the breast because this is not cooked enough. So that's the second thing. And, and to cook it on the side as I do, it's great. It's great sometimes, sometimes not. You have to have uh, a pan that you use all the time that you know is not going to stick or then you have to use an off-stick pan. Because people will put it on the side and the skin will stick to the bottom. And then you make a mess out of it. So uh, in case like this, very often, I don't turn it either. I just baste it, you know. But that to do it this way prevents you from having to baste all the time, you know. Hey, Chef, have you tried the, uh, uh, the American uh, breast-style chickens? And are they any good compared to the French ones? I, I don't know what you're talking about. The Americans, what? They, so they, they imported the same breed that they have in breast, the same chicken, oh, the, the blue the foot. The, oh, oh, the breast chicken, yes, right. Uh, I uh, I haven't actually tried the breast chicken, which they import. I mean, I, so I don't really know. But I also know that uh, uh, I used to have a friend who was raising very close uh, chicken in the same way. And... Uh, uh, often people who are used to uh, the standard chicken from the supermarket have a chicken like that. It has more taste. The meat is uh, moist, but more attached to the bone. It's tougher too. And they end up saying, mm, I'm not crazy about that chicken because it doesn't reflect. Uh, you know, when you're used to one type of chicken, like the one in the supermarket, and having another one, it's like the beef. And my friend Jean-Claude used to raise his beef and when we kill it, the kids say, ooh, uh, it was stronger in taste, it was, uh, it was different, even though, in my opinion, it was better. But if you're not used to that, uh, conventionally, you know, you, you go back to, uh, to the, the taste that you are used to and don't find the other one that attractive. All right, well, Chef, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Buy the book, The Art of the Chicken. And on the way out, can you describe the Jacques Pepin Foundation and where they can go to join and what you do there? Well, the JPF, the Jacques Pepin Foundation, was created by my son-in-law, uh, Rolly, with a chef. But he also had a PhD. He teaches at uh, Johnson & Well and at Boston University as well. 
and my daughter. And, uh, you know, I have all the, those shows that I've done through years. So at some point, two years ago, he said, who do you want to teach now? And I thought that uh, people who have been a bit disenfranchised by life, like people who come out of jail or homeless people or, uh, you know, uh, even veterans or former drug addicts, uh, people like this. So we teach people like that, usually through community kitchen. I was in Boston teaching that last week. I was in New York uh, a couple of months ago teaching in another school. So those community kitchen usually are not, you know, only young people, 20, 30, 40, even 50 years old. And then we try to bring people, give them, um, you know, uh, a new lease on life, if you want, by teaching them some of the principle of cooking so that they can reintegrate the, the workforce and work in a restaurant. And we need people like this too. So it's been quite uh, successful. And by the way, thank you for doing a video for us. You did a video for uh, for uh, the series of chefs, right? That uh, we have part of the, the, the Jacques Pepper Foundation. So thank you for that. Oh yeah, I based it on your uh, old grapefruit granny tea recipe. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, anyway, it was a it was a great honor, Chef. Thanks for coming on. Everyone, check out the JPF Foundation and the good work they're doing. Check out the Art of the Chicken Cooking Issues. Thank you.